From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Well, hello there. You have found us. Come on in and sit a spell. Pull up a stool and uh, warm yourself next to the electric bonfire. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett, and I thank you for inviting me into your home. And once again, I want to welcome once again our new affiliate, WRNI 1290 AM in Providence, Rhode Island. I hope The Conspiracy Show and WRNI 1290 have a long, happy, and mutually prosperous relationship. Hope. That's the uh, the state motto of Rhode Island, by the way. Hope. In just a few moments, we're going to make the phone lines available to you for an evening of open lines. And I always look forward uh, to the opportunity uh, to speak directly with you on the program. We don't do it very often, but tonight's the night, and we will roll out the phone numbers in uh, just a few moments. And uh, it will be up to you to decide... Uh, where you want to steer this program, conspiracies, political subterfuge, geopolitics, UFOs, ETs, cryptozoology, alternative everything. Uh, but first, I want to welcome a, a great friend to the program, into our studio. If you're in the greater Toronto area, you probably are very familiar with a certain bookstore, Conspiracy Culture. It's an independently owned source for information on conspiratorial and spiritual subject matter. And uh, while they have a storefront in Toronto, they also uh, have a web store. We'll talk about that as well. And I wanted to bring Conspiracy Culture co-founder and co-owner Patrick White into the studio, as we've done from time to time over the years, to share some of his recommendations uh, for those of you who are interested in the subject matter uh, and what a vast field it is. Conspiracies, the paranormal, the spiritual, alternative energy, alternative health, UFOs, ETs. You'll find it all in book form, DVD form, magazine form, at Conspiracy Culture. So here, with another installment of his essential conspiracy reading list, is, I say, a good friend of the program, Patrick White. Hey, Patrick, how are you? Richard, thanks for having me, buddy. My pleasure. First of all, as I mentioned, uh, you've got the storefront here in Toronto, but for all of our listeners in the U.S. as well that may not get into Toronto, you've also got, you know, you're also selling these books online. Can you tell us a little bit about the web store? Yeah, right now it's, you know, it's still in its early stages, so it's a fairly modest web shop, but we do have some select items available for purchase for those who are located in uh, cyberspace. So we have some, you know, choice titles available, and we've priced them very competitively. So regardless as to where you look around the web, uh, we feel that you'll still feel confident purchasing the items through our shop. Okay, let's talk about uh, some of the must-have titles. Uh, for those uh, that are just maybe getting into this field and they want a, a primer or, you know, they want one of the classics, if we're talking about uh, conspiracies, uh, lay a few titles on us. Sure. So if you're looking for something that's a little... You know, a little bit more classic that you would need for your shelf. Obviously, 1984 by George Orwell, which was uh, originally published in 1949. Great book. Gets into public manipulation, uh, government surveillance, perpetual war, you know, independent thinking equating to thought crimes. Uh, great book. Uh, titles like Rockefeller File, uh, None Dare Call It Conspiracy, written by Gary Allen. The Carol Quigley tome, Tragedy and Hope, which was originally published in 1966, which pretty much covers 1880 to 1963 and focuses on the economic problems brought about by World War One. That was my uh, an, 
sort of entree or entry into this whole field was was Tragedy and Hope by Carol Quigley, who was uh, Bill Clinton, President Clinton's professor at Georgetown University. And he had, from what I understand, access. He was sort of the, the Rockefeller family's official historian uh, and uh, chronicler. So he had access to all of their, their files and, and uh, information. And, I mean, he wasn't writing about these secret societies as a warning, he basically subscribed to a lot of their ideas, did he not? Oh, for sure. And I can only imagine what he was privy to, being able to access all those materials. So The Tragedy and Hope is is definitely a great book. We carry his Anglo-American establishment as well. Um, You know, uh, other titles, uh, for example, World Without Cancer and The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin, uh, we also carry Transformation of America and Access Denied by Kathy O'Brien and Mark Phillips, which is uh, essentially a documented autobiography of a victim who was put through government mind control programs, i.e. Uh, MK Ultra and Project Monarch. So we, we carry a lot of essential reading. Uh, you know, another book that would be considered must-have for the shelf would be Rule by Secrecy by Jim Mars. You know, he was just here in Toronto uh, you helped host the show. It was fantastic. It was remarkable, yes. Yeah, so th- those are just some of the titles that you would you know, pretty much have to have for your shelf. Um, there's been some recent releases that have come out that are, are definitely worth taking a look at if you wanted to discuss some of those. Yes, please. What's, uh, well, what's sort of number one on your list of, uh, of new releases in the conspiracy field? Well, I was just up north with a bunch of UFO guys at a retreat last night. Uh, so on the topic... Richard Dolan has a a book that's been recently released called UFOs for the 21st Century. Uh, Fantastic book. For anybody that's read anything by Richard Dolan, this just is another one of his tremendous books. Gets into ancient aliens, uh, gets into modern encounters, abductions, people who channel uh, alien entities, gets into sort of like the bizarre sciences and the black budget programs, uh, why the cover-up is essentially bound to end really soon, and what he foresees in the not-too-distant future with disclosure and pretty much the whole UFO phenomenon. So for anybody who's interested in UFOs or aliens, regardless as to your level of interest, this this book here would be, uh, I would recommend it for sure. That's uh, uh, UFOs for the 21st Century Mind by Richard Dolan. Richard Dolan, correct. Yeah, and, and this is the author of uh, uh, two real seminal uh, works, UFOs in the National Security State, and he takes it all the way from the sort of the mid-1940s up into, um, well, up into I think volume late... two goes into the 70s, doesn't it? Yes, it... and then he also wrote the AD, the After Disclosure, as well right. with Bryce Zabel. Exactly, yeah. Richard Dolan is a phenomenal writer and a phenomenal speaker. It's interesting that, that Dolan and, 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 and Grant Cameron as well, they've, uh, you know, these were sort of, uh, well, Dolan is a, is a trained historian, and they were all, you know, sort of facts and documents, and of course Grant Cameron has scoured all the presidential libraries, but the two of them now have sort of taken it to the next level where it's, it's not necessarily just about, you know, the documents. It's like they're, they're, um, they're getting into the metaphysical aspect of it, which I find very interesting. It is, and when you have a, a pair of brains like those and you apply it to a subject matter such as this, you really do end up with very fascinating material. 
So if you have the opportunity to pick up anything by either Dolan or Cameron, I would I would recommend doing so. What's the most uh, popular area within uh, the, the the conspiracy or paranormal field for you? When people come in, are they looking for? Is it mainly? Is it or first and foremost uh, uh, UFO ET material, or are they looking for alternative? Energy, alternative health, uh, or is it the conspiratorial? Uh, different strokes for different folks. So it's it's right across the board. On any given day, you have people coming in for looking for different subject matter. But when when something happens, current events, you know, when something happens out there in the world that really shakes things up, people usually come in looking for materials that are related to whatever the event was. You know, so for example, when uh, when the Boston bombings took place. And there was a lot of discussion about false flags and so on and so forth. People were coming in and they were looking for materials dealing with uh, historical examples of false flags. So what, whatever's happening out there really sort of drives the majority of the interest, but generally it's anything and everything. Patrick White is here, co-founder, co-owner of Conspiracy Culture, along with his uh, lovely bride and uh, partner, Kadena, although she's a little mic shy, so he's <laughs> sitting here <laughs> next to Patrick. Uh, Patrick, again, uh, moved locations from Queen Street, and now you're out on Bloor near the Lansdowne subway station. Give us the, uh, the location again. Sure. It's 1344 Bloor Street West, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, M6H1P2. And uh, you, you just recently this month opened a new location, um, August 22nd, was it? Yes, August 22nd. Okay, and people are finding you? They're, they know where you are? Oh, we've been busy from open to close every day since we've opened. It's been great. Great. Okay, so do you have any more titles for us? Anything uh, on the recent? Uh... Yeah, uh, Andrew Collins has released a book recently called Gobekli Tepe with the introduction by Graham Hancock. So I don't know if anybody's aware of Gobekli Tepe. Uh, site in eastern Turkey, uh, phenomenal. This, it's, uh, it's basically an exploration of this giant megalithic complex site in Turkey. Uh, who built it? Uh, how it gave rise to legends regarding the foundations of civilization. It details the layout of the site, the architecture, uh, some phenomenal carvings in the stones. It explores how it was built as a reaction to a global cataclysm. And it gets into how it was essentially the watchers from the Book of Enoch and the Anunnaki gods of Sumerian tradition who created it. Uh, insane, ridiculous site. I think they discovered it in 94 and it was only made public in 2010. And, and why why such a, a delay? I mean, are they trying to, were they trying to suppress this uh, this just, discovery? Just to keep it secret because they realized it was such a significant find that people would be shutting it down at first word. The book is really well written. I mean, anything by Collins and especially Graham Hancock. Oh, he's a heavyweight for sure. Yeah, so that uh, that I would definitely recommend. And something along a similar vein uh, released by Michael Pye and Kirsten Daly is Lost Secrets of the Gods, which is a compilation of essays and articles by individuals such as Jim Mars, uh, Robert Schock, Anthony West, Nick Redfern, mm-hmm. Laird Scranton, gets into ancient secret societies, gets into the giant lore. It makes connections between ancient Egypt and ancient China. Uh, great book, full of great information, super reader-friendly, 
don't have to commit too much time to it because it's, you know. Just short essays, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I had uh, Micah Hanks and uh, Paul Von Ward and, and Jim Mars uh, when I sat in on Coast to Coast uh, the last several weeks. And uh, Jim Mars, of course, his essay is at the end, and it ties it all together beautifully, as only Jim can do. Listen, Patrick, uh, really appreciate you coming in. Again, the new location? 1344 Bloor Street West. Conspiracyculture.com. You'll also be our official vendor at uh, Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit in November. Looking forward to that. Yes, me too. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right, Patrick, thank you so much. Open lines. Open lines when the conspiracy show continues right after this. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? All right, we are doing open lines uh, now until the top of the hour. All right, we're going to, is it Dan in Toronto? Dan, welcome. How are you? Oh, fine. I've been trying to get a hold of you. I've listened to all your shows and that. Um, I seen a spaceship when I was working at a carpet cleaning company in Hamilton in 1977 in Stony Creek, Ontario. I was We, we were in an apartment building uh, down on the lake and it's uh, on the 12th floor and all the power went out and there was a humming going on. We looked out. There was no balconies. We looked out the window. The... The uh, boss's brother and I were cleaning the carpets and that, and everything shot off. The phone wouldn't work, and that lady almost had a heart attack, the lady we were cleaning the apartment for. And and this ship went by, but it wasn't a saucer. It was it was as long as a football field. It was so many stories, like it was like five stories high, and it had these slot windows, but you couldn't see through them or anything like that, and it was all aluminum colored. Now, now, I don't know what he ever said anything about it, and I don't know what ever happened because I don't know if the media suppressed it or what. Now, was this the same incident that you, you mentioned in Hamilton in 1977, or is this a yeah, separate incident? Yeah, it was in Stony Creek, which was part, part of, of Hamilton. It wasn't part of Hamilton. It was like, uh, uh, it was like a suburb outside. Right. right, it's since been sort of amalgamated. Uh, and it's all and part what of happened was this ship come up from the like Lake Ontario, I don't didn't see it come out of Lake Ontario, but it came from the water and it was heading towards the escarpment, the the mountain mountain brow and everything like that. And you said this thing was about the length of five football fields. No, about about the length, about uh, I'd say about a one and a half football. One field. and a half it football was, fields. It was, it was rectangular because on the other side of the street there was like poles, hydro poles and everything. And the thing is, it didn't take out those poles. I mean, it was wide from from the front of the building. Did it make any sound? Yeah, it was just humming. Just humming. Yeah, it was like if you went around a hydro substation. And that. Right, right. And and uh, uh, was it? Uh, I mean, how fast was it going? Was it just kind of hovering? No, it was. It was. It was just like it was just gliding by. Right. These. Uh, this sounds similar to. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the the Stephenville, uh, Texas uh, sighting. Uh, back a few years ago that were um, heading in the direction of the Crawford Ranch, of course, which was the uh, 
sort of the uh, the ranch. Well, it's the ranch belonging to uh, George uh, uh, Walker Bush, George W. Bush. Oh, okay. And uh, uh, people reported, and when I say people, I'm talking about witnesses. Some of them no, were in, not him, or, or his no, no, he didn't see it. Confidence in that? No, not, we we don't know that he saw it. At least if he did, he's not saying anything. But that we're talking about former, uh, uh, not former, law enforcement officials, right. uh, who who uh, saw. This thing, very similar to what you're describing, although I believe it was triangular. And again, we're talking about... Well, I don't think they are coming saucers. No, no, no. I, I agree. But th- we're talking about craft crafts that yeah, were, uh, were hundreds ship. of yards. Yeah. And, and like I say, it was like five stories high, and, and it was all aluminum colored. That's I interesting. Mean, uh, five stories high, because uh, again, going back to Stephenville, one witness described it as a, a, a box store, like a giant box store hovering in the air. It's so large that it obliterated the, the sky. You looked up and you couldn't see the sky because this thing was so huge. That sounds like what you saw. Yeah. What do you think, uh, Dan, are, are these things extraterrestrial or are they some sort of super sophisticated well, anti-gravitic they're, device? They're, uh, doing, like, if they're here, I don't think they're doing anything to harm uh, because if they were going to harm us and they were that far advanced beyond our technology, they could easily wipe us out completely. But something that large, other people must have seen it. Well, yes, there had to be other people. The people in the building, I, I don't know if they're alive anymore. Uh, there were a lot of senior citizens and stuff like that living in that, that those residences. Uh, do you remember the exact date in 1977? I mean, how could you forget a oh, date like that? Um, because I hadn't gone to I hadn't gone to school yet, uh, college. Uh, I'd say around uh, April, May. April, May of 1977. Yes, I was living in the east end of Hamilton. Well, uh, let's let's throw that out there, and maybe other people other people saw something. Let me take you back. I mean, I'd be 37 years. If, if it would work towards discovering something, because the thing is, I know uh, that something's out there, and I mean. I've possibly seen other stuff. Uh, I have these feelings like something's watching me because maybe I did see something. Uh, were, was there any missing time uh, after the after you saw this craft? Did you take note of what time it was? Was there was there a, a, a time gap? Um, no, it's like like I say, because there was no balconies, you could only see as as the tail end of it went went by. You could see, like, I mean, it was moving, but the problem was it wasn't like, zoom, it was there and gone. It was it was just like it, it come, like like if you were to go down to the docks and you've seen a big ship coming through a canal or something like that. Right. It just glided by. Just floating by. Well, other and, people and must have seen is, that. I mean, it didn't hit nothing because nothing, no sparks went off or anything like that. Uh, and, I mean, all the power went off in the building and stuff like that, and yet, like, people weren't after afterwards clamoring downstairs to get outside and look at it, see what, it, what you know, to describe it. And, I mean, there was no there was no emergency vehicle showing up or anything like that. That is odd. All right, listen, Dan, I appreciate the call. Fascinating uh, account. Uh, let me throw that out there. Let me take people back. 37 years. Yeah. April, May of 1977 in, uh, in Hamilton. Uh, is there anyone else out there who saw something that night? Uh, again, very interesting similarities between that and uh, not only Stephenville in Texas, uh, but there are uh, many, many uh, reports of large craft. And we're, do- we're not talking, again, about saucer-shaped craft. We're talking about, imagine a box store, like a Walmart, cruising by, hovering by almost silently, 
just a few hundred feet, maybe above tree level. Not making much of a sound. That's what we're talking about. All right, open lines now until the top of the hour. 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740 in the greater Toronto area. And out of town, toll free, one 866 740 uh, perhaps you want to weigh in on uh, this Ebola scare. There was a recent uh, a study related to uh, the Ebola virus, uh, which states that the uh, the virus is rapidly mutating, making it difficult to diagnose and treat. This was a, a study conducted on the initial patients who were infected with the virus in Sierra Leone, which revealed more than 400 genetic modifications of the Ebola virus, which might prove detrimental for the ongoing treatment measures, but also to the vaccines that are uh, supposedly under clinical trials for future treatment of the Ebola virus. And, of course, we learned uh, uh, recently that the Center for Disease Control has a patent on one strain of the Ebola virus, which is a real head-scratcher. Researchers at the Broad Institute in Massachusetts and Harvard University warn that the Ebola virus is constantly undergoing mutation. The findings show that the future treatment options, including vaccines as well as diagnosing of the disease, will be very difficult and less effective as mutations continue. As of now, the researchers have analyzed around 99 Ebola viral genomes. Since the, viral, or since the uh, Ebola outbreak in West Africa in March, more than 1,550 people have died. Earlier in August, a new viral strain of the Ebola virus, uh, different from the one being observed in West Africa, was detected from uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, posing a threat to millions of lives all over the world. Uh, we're also uh, hearing that Ebola is now spreading into major West African cities. And it's re- re- uh, being reported that uh, West Africa Ebola cases are up 550 in a week. Now get this. Five co-authors of the latest Ebola study have died from Ebola. All right, let's say hello to uh, Ron, uh, checking in from the the Six Nations Reserve. Hello, Ron. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Hello, Richard. How are you? Very well, thank you. Yes, I'd like to relay a few stories that I have, um, starting in 2012. Um, in 2012, I think I've seen maybe, maybe from then to now, maybe 40 unidentified flying objects, and some things that I could identify. Now, are you out uh, Hagersville Way, Oshwegan, Cayuga? Whereabouts uh, are you? When I uh, sighted the the things that I did see, I was closer to Hagersville at the time. Okay. Now, since 2012, you have uh, you've seen 40 unidentified flying objects. Well, I've seen a lot of them that try to look like stars, but they're not stars. And at one point in 2012, I had a laser pointer, and I pointed at one of these stars, and I started going SOS to it, and then I went one, one, two, one, two, three, just to know that, you know, I could count. And I just sort of flushed it off, and I went in the house afterwards. The following night, I had an occasion to go outside because my bathroom was outside. And right over top of my house, rather than maybe 20 to 30 feet, I had three 
flying objects over my house that were shaped like old-fashioned irons, and they were about the size of a stretched limousine, and they were doing a triangular configuration, uh, all three points, and uh, one would leave one point and go to the other one, and they would all shift at the same time. But what I noticed on them, because my light on the house illuminated them a little bit, they had a flat side, which on the back end of them, it seemed like the back of them, um, they had a green and blue light. In the center, there was a large white light, and in the front, there was a red light. Anyone else, uh, did anyone else see these uh, these crafts? They, uh, there was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I was home alone, so I really didn't get to see any, you know, nobody else could see them. I tried to uh, report it, but I was just home home because I didn't have a photograph. Uh, now, recently, this is uh, interesting because just recently I, I get word from uh, a, a reporter at the uh, Brantford Expositor. Brantford's my my hometown, and uh, Susan Gamble, uh, who just wrote a piece on 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 me, a very nice piece in the uh, the Expositor earlier in the week, uh, that a new a brand new MUFON group has opened up in Brantford. Uh, so finally, people uh, down that way in, in southwestern Ontario have a, a new UFO watch group that they can uh, report these sightings to. So you might want to uh, uh, check out that group and, and get in touch with them. Now, uh, what, what is the most recent sighting you've had, Ron, on the Six Nations Reserve? Uh, my most recent sighting was 2013. Uh, it was April. And where my house was located is up on a, a bank overlooking a creek of a little valley. And that morning, I got up at 2 o'clock in the morning. I was going to go use the bathroom. I went outside, and there where the trees weren't, they didn't have any leaves on it at yet. And uh, over the trees, I seen this flying saucer a bona fide flying saucer coming toward me, and it stopped over top the creek, which is Boston Creek, and it lowered itself down so that it went a bit about 100 feet over top the creek, and then it started coming up the creek very, very slowly and illuminating the creek and its bank as it went up. It heightened itself to go over top the bridge area, which is the road below me, and it went around the corner, and it was gone. I didn't have anything to photograph it with, but it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It moved effortlessly and silent. It had a red, reddish-orange light that went around the outside of it, the very rim of it, and it uh, seemed like there was different blocks of letters in each one of those little... Uh, pigments that went around. It was going around in a clockwise motion. Listen, Ron, I, I really appreciate you uh, you checking in with us tonight, and uh, thank you for these detailed accounts. If you see any more, please don't hesitate to give us a call. Well, or thank you... you very much, Richard. It's, uh, it's a wonderful thing being able to talk about it to anyone that would understand. I appreciate it. And uh, Six Nations, is a, if you ever get a chance, it's a beautiful part of uh, the province, uh, out Hagersville Way, Oshwegan, Cayuga, especially in the fall. You want to take a nice drive? That's yeah, the place. It's All right. very nice that you come out. Okay, Ron, thank you so much. Open lines here on The Conspiracy Show, 416 
Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome back. Open lines. A rare opportunity. Uh, just you, me, and the telephone here on The Conspiracy Show. Let me give you the numbers one more time. 416-360-0740. That's in the greater Toronto area. 416-360-0740. And toll free from just about anywhere. one 866 740-4740. When he was, uh, for a while he was kind of a perennial, well, every four years he would run for president. Uh, And uh, I always liked Ron Paul, former U.S. Congressman Ron Paul. Just a a simple country doctor uh, with what I thought was some pretty simple homespun wisdom and common sense. Uh, But I was always curious as to why he was so silent about 9-11. 9-11. There were a number of uh, uh, times that, that he was asked, and he just kind of brushed it off. And part of me understands why. When you're running for president, uh, talking about 9-11 potentially being an inside job is sort of the equivalent of, of, of kissing the third rail in politics. But now that he's sort of retired from politics uh, and left his son, Rand Paul, to sort of uh, pick up the mantle, although I must say Rand is no Ron Paul, um, he's now talking about 9-11. And he is now suggesting that the U.S. government knew about the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks before the incident occurred inside the country. He said, I believe that if we ever get the full truth about 9-11, we'll find out that our government had it in the records exactly what the planes were, or at least close to it. This was um, uh, Paul speaking on a, a radio interview with Money and Markets host Charles Goyette last Friday. He continued, you already mentioned that the U.S. government had been warned that something was going to happen, he added. Does that prove the fact that our president and others actually sat down and laid the plans and did this? I don't think it does, he said. The former presidential candidate also noted that the crimes committed by former al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden were minor compared to the harm the United States has caused since the 2001 attacks. Our own government did more harm to the liberties of the American people than bin Laden did, Paul said. All right, let's go back to the phones, and uh, I believe it's Tony checking in from New York State. Tony, welcome. How are you? Hey, Richard. Uh, I'm good. I just have a quick uh, story to relate uh, of an experience that I uh, went through over about 15 years ago. I was driving uh, delivery on a, on a countywide route. What part of the uh, of the state are you? Uh, upstate New York, near Ups- Buffalo, between Rochester and Buffalo. Area. So Erie County, Niagara County? Oh, uh, Monroe area. Monroe. Okay, I know it. Yep. Okay. Okay, this experience occurred about 15 years ago. I was a driver delivering. I stopped at a senior towers and uh, just coincidentally enough was making a delivery. I stopped. There were some elderly people entering, uh, exiting their vehicles, going into the senior tower, and... Um, as they were walking, the the older women were talking about the experience they just came from. They had they were relating to themselves as they were walking. I, I just happened to be there at the right time, and I overheard it. They claimed that they were at this outdoor, uh, like not an auction, but like a flea market thing, and there was a table, and there was uh, some things on the table. And they said they looked up in the sky. They saw these two clouds meeting. They saw this dow just go, come off the table and go up in the air, and ascend up into where the clouds were meeting, 
And that wasn't the only strange thing. They also related that this strange stuff fell from the sky. I think uh, uh, in ufology that would be considered like angel hair. Okay, right. If you've heard of that. Yes, um, yes. And I was just amazed by this. And, and I stood there in just kind of amazement. Now, I didn't go to the scene where they were describing it just happened. That they were just coming from it. I, didn't, I had to go on the route, so I had to leave there quickly, do a delivery. Uh, years later, I would read uh, the account in, uh, say, uh, Bud Hopkins' uh, testimonial books there, you know, right. of, of his, uh, his patients or clients describing, you know, uh, UFO abduction scenarios where uh, women uh, were, take, were impregnated and they would, uh, uh, the fetuses would be removed and then they would try nurturing these fetuses. The woman would re- be returned to the craft or the ship and they would see the fetuses and they would meet with the, the developing, you know, children. Uh, to give them an emotional support, and then uh, they would use dolls uh, because these creatures, these, uh, I believe they're Nephilim, uh, would couldn't relate emotionally because they lacked the human emotional capacities, and they the the dolls were brought in as like a like a like a you know a tool. Right, right. So that's what I got, Richard. I just wanted to share that. It's, I know it's kind of a unique testimony, and probably you, you won't hear too many like that. No, I've not heard um, that before. Some anything resembling that before, Tony. And I, I really appreciate you checking in from from New York, Richard. The other thing is, you mentioned Mufon, uh, a pretty good organization. We knew some people. Uh, we did lose a negative to them. Uh, one of the triangular craft pictures we had from another area in the Catskills. Just the thought. I appreciate it. Interesting. Okay, appreciate okay, it, Tony. Richard. Okay. Uh, do we have time, Tim, for another call, or are we heading into a break here? Okay. Let's uh, let's head on into a break. When we come back, uh, I think we've got Fred in Philadelphia. If you've got a line, hold on to it. If not, 416-360-0740. Toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Open lines now until we dim the lights. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. An evening of open lines, now until the top of the hour. Uh, Interesting story on NBC News. Photos of Yeti footprints hit the auction block. Ardent believers in the existence of a mythical creature known as the Yeti may be excited to learn that rare photographic evidence, in quotes, of this mysterious beast is now up for auction. In 1951, British mountaineer Eric Earl Shipton was leading an expedition on Mount Everest when he took a series of photographs of what he believed might be the footprints of a bipedal, ape-like creature known as the Yeti. The photos, the photos sparked a debate in Europe about the existence of the uh, mythical creature, according to uh, Christie's. Now, uh, I just wanted to mention that story because I just received, speaking of, uh, of Britain, I just received uh, an email uh, from someone going by the name of Night Fury, who listens to the uh, the show, the conspiracy show, via the the podcast? He says, "I was listening to a podcast of your recent show on Bigfoot, and I wanted to tell you my story. I'm from the UK, and I was working at a summer camp from June to August 2009, but this was in Massachusetts, uh, from 7:30 a.m. to 9 p.m. I was with the children, and after that was my uh, own free time. Once or twice a week, the kitchen staff would set up a gathering in the nearby forest. It was basically an excuse to party and have a few beers." My friend and I were running late one night, and the other lads went ahead with us while we got ready. At around 10.30 p.m., we decided to leave for the party. We made our way around the stable in silence as to not rouse the horses and alert the camp security bosses, with only starlight and our small small torches to guide us. We walked through a clearing 
or it, uh, we walked through a clearly trodden path of tall grass left by others attending the party and had some good banter on the way. Either side, the grass was about four to five feet high. Just a guess, as I'm five foot nine. As we made our way through the wind, or sorry, as we made our way through, the wind suddenly stopped, and so did our conversation. At there, as there was an eerie mood in the air. Around five to six feet in front of us, some sort of giant creature moved from one side of the tall grass to the other. It briefly looked at us both with huge, glowing eyes, reflecting the light of our torches. He's a, a Brit, so I, I, I'm gathering he means flashlights. And continued on its way. My friend and I were frozen with fear, and as soon as the creature left, we ran as fast as we could to the party. As soon as we arrived, people were making jokes about how scared we looked, but we didn't dare tell them what we saw for fear of ridicule. Eventually, we let slip to a couple of the guys about what we saw, but in a jokey fashion, so they wouldn't take the mickey. I cannot explain to this day what I saw, and although I didn't detect malevolence from this creature, I still get chills thinking about this incident. In hindsight, I'm convinced this creature was Bigfoot, or some sort of hominid. My friend is six foot six, and this creature towered above him, so I'd estimate its size to be about seven to eight feet tall. The other thing, the other strange thing was the total silence in the forest. Even when the creature pulled the grass trees back, there was no sound at all, no rustling, no birds, no branch breaking underfoot, absolutely no sound. After hearing your show, I just wanted to tell my story and get it off my chest without ridicule. Many thanks. Keep up the good work. Kind regards. Uh, Brins, he signs off. Appreciate the email. And uh, he was referring to a recent uh, story we did on our show on Bigfoot, but uh, sightings here in Ontario, primarily Algonquin Park, not too far, a couple hours from here. Uh, hundreds of sightings up in Algonquin Park. All right, uh, to the uh, the city of brotherly love we go. Is it Fred in Philadelphia? Fred, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, I know this is not a sensationalist topic, but I think it's very important. Uh, I have have uh, had a lot of experience with reviewing patents at a federal depository library, and uh, basically, I just want to say this is happening all over the world, where uh, all the sources of information are being chopped up into non-linkable uh, databases. How do you mean? I'm not sure I follow, Fred. What do you mean they're being chopped up? Well, you're not going to have the ability to educate yourself independently politically uh, by using free resources or even even going to college will be difficult. It'll be difficult to do this. You're saying that that uh, that that patents that are readily available, let's say online, where you can you can read about them, that information is being systematically destroyed. I'm saying that, that I'm I'm saying that the uh, the uh, way the way to use information, your evaluation of it is is going to be hindered. You have it, it, there's always information available, Richard, but. Uh, whether we realize it or not, we always categorize it. We always put a importance to every piece of information. We always evaluate it. And that's going to be impossible because the system is changing, deliberately changing, so that the First Amendment is not operating. It's going to be an Orwellian uh, type of a information system. So we, we would be, di- we would be uh, denied access to 
to knowledge, essentially, is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, to, mean, to meaningful knowledge. Meaningful knowledge, right. This is a, as a system of control, presumably. Yeah. The, the, basically, uh, uh, up until this point, you've always had the author, even if it wasn't perfect, you had the author communicating with the reader. Uh, now, I believe the government has found a way to sort of twist that pipeline to restrict it and in a way that you don't realize. All right, Fred. Uh, I'd, I, I, admittedly, I, I mean, I don't necessarily understand this entirely, uh, but it's it's interesting nonetheless. And, uh, you know, if you have any other information that you could uh, gather together for us at some point and, and check in with us once again, I'd appreciate it. Fred is in uh, Philadelphia. Thanks for that. Open lines uh, for another 10 minutes or so, 416-360-0740. That's in the greater Toronto area and, of course, toll-free from out of town for all our affiliates. South of the 49th, 1-866-740-4740. Uh, I've done a number of programs on the, uh, the dangers of EMF, uh, an electro, or, sorry, an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse. Uh, which could be caused by the detonation of a small nuclear device at a fairly low altitude, uh, but it could, al- it could also happen uh, as a result of a, a coronal mass ejection. And, and this is uh, of great concern because all of our electrical grids in the United States and Canada, you, you know how interdependent they are and, and connected, uh, they could, they're not, they're not uh, shielded properly. At least we know they're not in the United States. Uh, not sure exactly, you know, what the status is here in Canada, but there is great concern among uh, some of the people that I've had on this show, Michael Maloof and others, uh, that an EMP event, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when, whether, again, it's coronal mass ejection or some sort of uh, um, terrorist or rogue state attack. Uh, and we would all be left, you know, freezing in the dark. Uh, now, interesting story I, I see here. I, I, where is this? Uh, this is trying to see the uh, the source of this, so I can give the. T- no, I don't have it here, but it's the article is called "Electromagnetic Warfare Is Here: A Briefcase-Sized Radio Weapon Could Wreak Havoc in Our Networked World." It's by William A. Radasky, and uh, he says in the 2001 action movie *Ocean's Eleven*, criminal u- use an electromagnetic weapon to black out a portion of Las Vegas. I remember that movie. Very futuristic, you may say, but the threat is real and growing. The problem is growing because the technology available to attackers has improved even as the technology being attacked has become more vulnerable. Our infrastructure increasingly depends on closely integrated high-speed electronic systems operating at low internal voltages. That means they can be laid low by short, sharp pulses, high in voltage but low in energy. Output that can now be generated by a machine the size of a suitcase, batteries included. Electromagnetic attacks are not only possible, they're already happening. One may be underway as you read this. Even so, you'd probably never hear of it. These stories are typically hushed up for the sake of security or the victim's reputation. Occasionally, though, an incident comes to light. In May of 2012, for instance, the Korea Herald reported that over 500 aircraft flying in and out of South Korea's Incheon and Gimpo airports reported GPS failures, as did hundreds of ships and fishing boats in the sea west of Incheon Airport. The source of the EM fields was traced to the North Korean city of Kaesong, about 50 kilometers north of Incheon. 
South Korean officials indicated that North Korea had imported truck-based jamming systems in 2010 that had the capability to jam GPS signals. These officials speculated that one purpose of the jamming was to interfere with South Korea's highly digital society. Or perhaps the North Koreans were conducting an experiment using South Korea as their beta tester. In the decades past, the few electronic systems that existed worked at higher voltages than today's machines and at lower frequencies, making them less sensitive to EM disruption. Today, though, any digitally controlled infrastructure presents a target. Uh, I'm going to post this story on the website, richardserrett.com, and I'll also tweet it if you want to check it out. I think it's worth a uh, a read. Electromagnetic warfare is here. All right, uh, let's say hello to Mark, who is in Toronto this morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Mark. Good evening, Mr. Serrett. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Likewise, sir. Um, uh, I, I take it you know Toronto fairly well? Uh, reasonably. I, uh, I've called Toronto home for the better part of 30 years. Okay. Uh, this, this goes back to around 2000. Now, I did write this, this uh, at the time I wrote this sighting up uh, in detail. Um, are you still there? Yes, listening. Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, I have my radio off here. So, Thank you. Um, I, I wrote this up, and my brother uh, in Vancouver was in MUFON at the time. Right. And uh, I send it to him with detailed diagrams and the, the formulas I use to calculate the altitude, etc. But I never heard anything back from, he, from him or MUFON about that I was expecting to get maybe a sighting report. But what happened was, it was... Uh, um, uh, probably early November or middle November, and it was one of those summers where the summer had gone on quite long. We had a lovely summer, and uh, you know that when uh, the summer ends in, t- in the Toronto area, we get that northwest wind coming down from Manitoba, coming down the trough, as we say, and, and you know you can tell the summer had gone. That's right, the, exactly. Yeah, it was blustery. There was a high wind, and uh, there were some uh, some high clouds, and you could uh, lots of high clouds. It, it was fairly overcast, and you could see. See them being blown across the city, you know, right right across from from west to east. I got about two minutes here. Um. Okay, I was at Bloor and Lansdowne, uh, where and um, where I used to live, and uh, I, I still maintained a, a little uh, garage uh, workshop there uh, after I moved up from the area. Um, I looked up in the sky, and uh, there were searchlights coming from the CNE area. And uh, as you probably have seen lots of times, and and uh, they were sweeping around the sky. Right. And at one point, almost overhead, whenever the searchlights passed overhead at this one point, you could see this object illuminated in them. What it was, if you hold a, a small, uh, let's say a, a pea at arm's length, it, was, it looked like a, a ball of dense cloud, about pea size at arm's length, surrounded by... Uh, a ball of slightly less dense uh, cloud about the size of a quarter held at arm's length. Now, uh, because I could see the angle the searchlights were making as they swung around, and I knew the distance down to the CNE grounds where they were from Bloor and Lansdowne, I used trigonometry, basic high school math, to calculate <laughs> the altitude. Good for you. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was about 15,000 feet was the answer I got. Uh, you take something the size of a pea or a quarter held at arm's length, and that makes it like at least the size of a strip mall. There you go. Yep, these floating and, uh, box stores we're hearing about. For at least an hour, at least an hour. I was looking at other people to see if anyone noticed that no one was looking up. You know, people just running. It was a cold, windy night, and people were going about their business hurriedly. But I stood at least an hour. I changed my location a couple of times and kept looking at it. It did not move. It wasn't blowing around in the wind. The clouds were racing by across the city in this, you know, the, the late November you know, blast we were getting. And 
it, this thing did not move. It, I, I just wonder. I've heard about things shrouded in cloud, and I was wondering if anyone else had ever seen this or knew what, what it was. This is an atmospheric phenomenon. Give us the date again, uh, uh, Mark. Give us the date, roughly. Uh, I had it on the report. I'd have to check my files. It's years ago now. It's like 14 years ago, but it was around 2000. Okay. All right. Well, we'll throw that out there, and uh, I'll invite people to uh, maybe send me an email. You can uh, email me through the website, richardserrett.com. Just go to the contact page, and uh, if you saw anything, um, roughly 15,000 feet, visible uh, certainly around the CNE, caught up in the uh, the, the searchlights, and the yeah. CNE, of course, going on right now, just uh, a stone's throw from here. Oh, so, yeah. Well, the, I was, uh, no, I was at Blue and Lansdowne. Right. But, right. But, uh, and it was almost overhead. Where I was. Okay, so 2000. What what time? Uh, late August, right? No, late late November. Late November. Middle, I'm middle sorry. Middle to late November. Middle to late November. I oh, got it. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, throw that out there and see what happens. I appreciate your call, Mark. Oh, thank you very much for taking my call, Mr. Sarah. It was a pleasure. Not at all. Uh, and uh, listen, if you uh, if you ever contact uh, MUFON and you're not getting you know the response you want, there's always I know it's an American organization, but Peter Davenport is the uh, the director at the National UFO Reporting Center, and he may I don't know for sure, but I, I'm guessing he might take some Canadian uh, calls as well. And that's newfork.org, N-U-F-O-R-C, newfork.org. All right, that's it for uh, us. Listen, next week. Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, back on the program, the author of The Harbinger, uh, talks about uh, signs of an impending economic crash which seem to fit in with some sort of biblical cycle. It's called the Shemitah. Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, back next week on the program, along with Joshua P. Warren, paranormal investigator, the author of a brand new book. It's a good one. It was a dark and creepy night. Thanks, Tim Spreen. In the meantime... Don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.